This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Daniel Jose Older returns discussing his new book, Battle Hill Bolero. Then PW Bookselling editor Judith Rosen summarizes 2016 sales at independent bookstores. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. There is no movement in fiction oh, at all. I'm um, sorry. Yeah, you yeah. know, I came back from the holidays. We had this nice two weeks off. Right. I was expecting to come back to excitement and New Year's fire. No, the, the top debut on the hardcover fiction list is at number 12. And everything above that looks pretty much the way it has looked. Um, you know, at the top of the list, we've still got John Grissom, James Patterson, Colson Whitehead, all the people you would continue right. to expect to see. Um, and uh, at number 12, we have Curtain of Death. This is by W.E.B. Griffin and William E. Butterworth IV, father and son. And uh, our review says that it, they undertake the odd decision to name a major character Claudette Colbert. I don't oh, wow. know why they would have done that, but yeah. uh, it does make suspending disbelief even more of a challenge in this book, which is their third clandestine operations novel. Uh, our review says that uh, their Claudette Colbert is a, a WAC technical sergeant stationed in Munich in 1946. And when four men try to abduct her, she pulls a revolver out of her bra, shoots three of them dead, and mortally wounds a fourth. And mm. uh, that's the sort of melodrama that you get uh, that continues throughout the book. We call right. it a formulaic spy story, uh, and other authors have explored with much more depth the moral ambiguity of the U.S. government's decision to turn a blind eye to war crimes in order to counter the Soviet threat. Mm. So... Not too exciting. And then the only other new book in the top 25 is at number 25. It's The Midnight Bell by Jack Higgins. This is a thriller, um, 22nd in his Sean Dillon series. Our review calls it Routine. Dillon is a former IRA assassin, and it pits him against the new leader of Al-Qaeda, who calls himself simply The Master. And Dylan took out the previous master, and his successor is plotting revenge. Usual sort of thing, international thriller, etc., etc. Our review says characters act in reckless ways that will distance some readers from any sense of reality, and others may not care for the unsophisticated politics. For example, a supposedly savvy former president asserts that the U.S. thought at one point that the deaths of Saddam Gaddafi and bin Laden would cure the ills of the Middle East. Anyone who's been paying more attention than that (laughs) may not find this too interesting. And that's what we have in fiction that is it what's oh, happening that's disappointment. That's it too is bad. disappointing so uh i keep thinking of january as like a big book a yeah. big month for yeah. uh for big books but i guess we'll wait and see so what's happening in well, hardcover this, nonfiction? this first one not surprising it's going to be um kind of tied to new year's resolutions and it's 
basically what we see every first of the year, yep. diet books. Yep. Um, so the top one, Lose Your Belly Diet, Change Your Gut, Change Your Life by Travis Stork. That's at number one. And before I get to number two, I'm just going to go over the other uh, diet books. And basically, uh, it's the, this year's fad is zero sugar. So no sugar. Big uh, piece in the Times. Is these books have been reviewed at number 10. Zero sugar diet, the 14-day plan to flatten your belly, crush cravings, and help you uh, keep lean for life. We say this plan is informative and entertaining uh, and will help readers rein in cravings and become savvy monitors of added sugar. Sugar consumption. So this is uh, uh, that that was I think the only book that we were able to review uh, on that. But that that's that. Uh, there's a couple more, and then you go uh, all the way to number thirty three, meaning a couple more sugar books. And this one is called The Case Against Sugar by uh, Gary Taubes uh, from Knopf, the latest offering from health journalist Taubes prosecutes the case against sugar, in particular sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. Readers will hate to love this book since it will cause them to thoroughly rethink the place of sugar in their diet. So this is one of several no sugar books. That was more of a narrative and a history. Uh, the zero sugar diet is actually a diet. There's a couple more. But at number two, this is the only narrative, the real, I mean, narrative one, and this is uh, Carrie Fisher's The Princess Diarist. And that sold just under the number one Lose Your Belly Diet. Uh, and that's just in the week. And when I just went on to Amazon to take a look at their numbers, it says that that book is out of stock. So No surprise. Uh, no surprise, exactly. And and that's basically what we have. So not, not a lot going on. I hope no. that 2017 will be a better year on the celebrity death front than 2016. Yes. I've lost count of how right. many books we've seen on the bestseller list yeah. powered by an obituary. Right, so exactly. Hopefully exactly. Yep. hopefully fewer of yep. those. Yep. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Daniel Jose Older brings us an update from the Bun Street Roomba series. We'll be right back. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Daniel Jose Older on the line. His new book is Battle Hill Bolero. Welcome back, Daniel. Thank you. It is great to be here. So we spoke with you two years ago when your first book, when your first novel in the series, Half uh, Resurrection Blues, was published. And now you've just come out with the final installment of this trilogy, Battle Hill Bolero, as we just mentioned. So bring us up to date from Half Resurrection Blues. I mean, where there's now this all out war between rebel forces and New York City's Council of the Dead. Yes. So, yeah, a lot has happened. Um, not only was there a novel in between, but there's a collection of short stories called Salsa Nocturna, um, which was actually my first book and uh, recently re-released myself that um, comes in between Midnight Taxi Tango, which is book two, and the book I just released, um, Battle Hill Bolero. Basically, people are set up with this big bureaucratic disaster of an entity deciding who gets to be where in the whole scheme of life and death, right? Because Council of the Dead basically took it upon themselves to regulate uh, the entire system of the afterlife. Um, who goes to hell? Who gets to stick around and hang out? Who's allowed to talk to the living? And all these things are very corruptly distributed among the ghosts based on different hierarchies that have um, stayed over from the living world. So everybody's tired of it. 
And eventually, you know, they push too hard and all that rebellion breaks out. And that's kind of, it's about to break out as we enter into the story. And Carlos is in the middle of that, right? Because he's half dead and half alive. So he occupies always this kind of in-between space. And he's also pretty fed up with the council. And as we learn more about all of their nefarious deeds in relationship to his own life and his complicated history, including how he died, he's really just had enough. So he's positioned in this very strange space where he's friendly with the rebels, he's uh, officially an agent of the council, and he has some decisions to make. So tell us about that that liminal space, because Carlos has always been occupying that, um, as you say, he's half alive and half dead. He doesn't really understand at the beginning of the series how that happened, how that came to be. No one really knows. And now he's found other people like him, other half-dead people, and um, and he's caught up in all of this political turmoil. How does he carve out a space for himself rather than being defined by all the things he isn't? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it, just what you said. It's, it's really, Carlos's um, arc is always towards building community around him. And he doesn't do it consciously, and just like I, as a writer, didn't necessarily consciously set out to kind of increasingly create this world around Carlos of friends and comrades and, and co-warriors, you know, in this world. Um, but that's, it, it's almost like a retake of the lone wolf kind of noir trope, which is, you know, and noir is definitely um, a genre that this series looks back to um, as a kind of forefather or foremother of where it comes from, like much of the fantasy, at the same time with a critical eye, right? Because the the lone wolf thing is really problematic when you're, living your life <laughs> because right. we don't get that far when we're lone wolves and uh but the mythology of it is that that's the only way to get anywhere the the lone individual and the rugged individual all that stuff so it's it, it's almost a, a way of, of really interrogating that but it's also just about the big beautiful world that carlos lives in which is full of dead people a lot of people half dead people like him and all the different relationships that they have to each other and to the council um, so what I ended up doing without totally meaning to at first is writing the story of a community. And that's how the series also, it's it's sort of outwardly expansive in that the first book is very much just Carlos. It's his main, you know, he's the only POV. And then increasingly, the second book, there's two other characters involved. By the third book, there's four characters total point of view, and they're all really full point of view characters, not like they just kind of drop in here and there. They all have their own arcs, and they all have very different viewpoints of this um, expanding war that's taken over the, the living and the dead universes. Um, and, and Carlos is kind of our best uh, guide through that because he's able to get into the different spaces and sort of, at the one hand, be at home in them, and on the other hand, be an outsider in them. And so we see things um, from his point of view a lot because of that. So uh, the the novel set, uh, as the others, are in Brooklyn. Um, how, how has Brooklyn changed for you in the last two years? And, and how has it um, mm. changed, you know, influenced your novels or changed within the novels? Mm. Yeah, I was talking about how actually when, when writing Shadow Shaper, my young adult book, which is the first book I ever wrote, it, it literally would change so fast that I would have to change descriptions on the way during the process of editing. You know, certain blocks were one way when I was writing them and a whole other way by the time I was going to edit. And that is very, that's a startling rate of gentrification to be happening right now. And it is extremely fast. So, you know, here we are sort of watching 
this place change right in front of our faces and part of that change and not a part of that change at the same time. And people who were pricing other people out are now being priced out. And it's, it's dramatic. And I think it's really on the writer who's writing the city to capture the moment of the city that we're living in or that the story is, is set in. Um, it sort of boggles my mind when I read these stories about Brooklyn or most cities in the United States which are going through this change, and it's totally not there. You know, it, it, it's impossible to live in Brooklyn and not understand that there's this gigantic change, this sea change uh, happening right now, you know, in the years that we are living. So that's as much as I can, I try to reflect that in the book, just like I would you know, just like I do make an effort to talk about just the, the basic physical aspects and the, and the sensual aspects of what it means to live in Brooklyn. You know, all these pieces are part of that puzzle of context. You know, how do we talk about a place? And the one thing about a context that is almost across the board true is that it is in, it is in a constant state. It's a, it's a dynamic element, and it's in flux. Even those places that look like they're standing perfectly still, there's change that's happening. And I think that's where we as writers need to go is to understand that change and never fall prey to this mythology of the perfectly still trapped in time type of place because it doesn't exist. And of course, people also aren't perfectly still and trapped in time. How have you changed as a writer over the course of writing this series? Mm, that's a great question. Goodness. I definitely think a lot of it has to do with confidence. Um, I don't, you know, uh, Half Resurrection Blues is sort of a very straightforward novel. Um, in a lot of ways, it's really, you know, this one very linear past from this character who has no history, essentially, um, to trying to find that, to, you know, stopping the bad guy and trying to get the girl. And that a lot of that is because I was really just trying to figure out if I could indeed write a novel <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I had written short stories, and in fact, the first two chapters came directly from a short story that I'd written of Half Resurrection Blues. And so, you know, I just really didn't know if I could do it. So I was like, let me try this medium, this long-form thing, um, and let me see where it gets me and what happens. And then by Midnight Taxi Tango, I was like, okay, I can do it. I've done it twice now, kind of Shadow Shaper, and I can now try to really be more expansive and be more experimental in my approach. So it doesn't have to just be about this one dude. Um, let me bring other voices into this picture and see how it changes things. And that turned out to be a really fun challenge for me. Like it, it really opened up the process um, to get these different voices in there and different techniques. And then also to have the ability to be more playful with the plot itself and the story and the narrative arc and see how, you know, having these different um, perspectives could really allow me to just jump around so more. Because there were a lot of moments writing Half Resurrection Blues where I would get frustrated because I would know things were occurring in the story that I didn't have any eyes on mm. and wouldn't be able to really get to because of first person. And I think one of the really valid critiques of Half Resurrection Blues is that Sasha comes across very much as like a femme fatale character without a whole, we don't know a lot about her. And that's partially because Carlos doesn't know a lot about her. And that's the only, that's the only eyes we really have. Um, so I, you know, I do what I gave her a whole chapter where she gets to tell her story in that book, and it's still not quite enough. And that's also part of why I really wanted her to be uh, one of the main voices in Battle Hill Bolero. This is her really her moment to really step up and take part in this big conflict that's rising up in the ghost world. 
So Sasha is one of the narrators of this installment. Um, who are the others and how did you select them to be your eyes and to be the, the people or the ghosts through whom the reader experiences the story? Right. So we so we have Carlos again, because Carlos is kind of the through line through the whole series. Um, we have Sasha. Um, the next one is Chris, who is who first appears in Salsa Nocturna, the collection of short stories. Chris is this kind of real renegade, badass uh, teenage ghost who is a punk rocker in life um, and then a weapons expert in death. So she's kind of the only one in the council who knows how to work all these complicated ghost ballistics, because it turns out that the dead are not that really on point with their, with their weapon technology. They're still trying to figure that whole thing out. Uh, but for whatever reason, Chris is really good at it. And so that's one of the abilities that the rebel movement is kind of looking at her like, wow, you, you really are an asset. Uh, but she's also a teenager and she's moody and <laughs> she falls in love quickly and she's complex and all these things. So we follow her through it. And then the other main character is Caitlin Fern, who is one of the antagonists of Midnight Taxi Tango. And honestly, it was so much fun to write. That was a big part of my decision to um, include her. I also really wanted to play with this idea of having an antagonist point of view character, kind of an anti-hero almost, um, to see if I could work that. And, 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 and again, because there's this scene in Midnight Taxi Tango where she and Carlos actually go out for a drink because they're both they're both basically running game on each other, trying to get each other to uh, underhandedly do some work for them that they're not being upfront about. And and in it, Caitlin just gets wasted and reveals a whole bunch of stuff about her life. She grew up in this um, supposedly normal nuclear, quote-unquote normal nuclear American, all-American family, but really it was kind of a front to have this whole cockroach cult um, that came up around her brother. And she'd always known that she was a part of that world and that she was kind of the designated cleaner upper of messes and all this other stuff. So she's had this intense life and she just partially just wants to be normal and like date and have little like silly problems and stuff like that. And she kind of lusts after that mediocre normal life, but she also despises it and hates everybody that is it. And, you know, she just, she's really weird. <laughs> when I started writing her, I was like, whoa, this character is like way deeper than I realized, which is always a great thing. Um, and that was another moment where it was like, just giving her this one confessional in the bar in the middle of that book didn't seem like enough. Like she had more of a story. Um, so I dropped her in. And then as it turned out, she was very pivotal to a lot of the events. And it really helped, again, to have this character on the other side of the of the uh, front lines of the battle to really give us a sense of what's going on in council headquarters and what are the different, because I really like a complex world, uh, both on the side of the, of the quote unquote good guys and the bad guys, right? Like they needed to be having their own internal strife in the council, I think for the book to really come alive. And the best way to get to that was to have someone inside, you know, who we were following. And she's like Carlos in the sense that she also has this insider-outsider status. She's fully alive, but she's the most powerful necromancer anybody knows. So the council's like, great, let's hire her as a consultant and bring her in and have her, you know, whoop people when we need it. And boom, she's on the inside. But she's, again, just disdainful of everything, both alive and dead. And she's almost, in essence, the opposite of Carlos, who kind of loves everybody on the low. And so there we have her. And she's, again, she's just so much fun to write. And I'm, I felt like she also threw the racial dynamics of the story kind of into high relief uh, in Battle Hill Boleo oh. because uh, you've you've created uh, an atmosphere where most of the narrators are people of color. I guess I 
should say ghosts of color. It's it's a little difficult right. to know how to how to refer to the half dead and the undead. Um, but you right. know, even Carlos, one of the things he's figuring out is just like what his literally what his heritage is. Um, not not in the sort of epic fantasy. Am I really a king? Sense, but just in the like, <laughs> what race am I? Sense. Um, and then you have Caitlin right. hanging out with a couple of other white women in a way that um, where the I. I don't know how to describe it. I felt like the, even as we were getting her perspective from within that, it felt so alien and weird to be reading about a bunch of white women within the rest of your series, which is completely not about that at all. And it was so interesting. (laughs) I'm glad you felt that way. It was really interesting to write and it was really easy to write. That scene really just flowed out. Um, maybe because I've been in similar situations and I was just remembering. Um, but it was, it was kind of this opportunity to, you know, have her have that moment of both envy and disgust and desire, Mm. um, around the idea of friendship, um, and camaraderie and kinship, but also to be very much, I mean, she's so much a part of that world that she doesn't even fully realize it. Right. Because she, she's very conscious of the way she's an outsider and the way she, overthinks everything and she approaches it as this kind of strategic gambit that she's doing to appear normal. Um, and then she'll be suddenly struck by the fact that she actually has um, feelings of caring towards these women who she puts quotation marks around the word friends when she describes. And then she's like, wow, I really do. I get the inside jokes. I know all their little quirks and nuances. And it's funny when they, you know, make fun of my Indian boyfriend. I think it's funny too. Like she, so she fits. And she doesn't even realize that she fits. Um, and, and that's all at play for her, uh, including when she then goes off and really joins the council and enters into the war. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Daniel Jose Older, author of The Battle Hill Bolero. And uh, last time you were on the show, you talked about music's influence on your work. Uh, obviously, it shows in your titles. You've got salsa, blues, tango, bolero, rumba. How do all of those flavors of music go together and shape your books? Mm, you know, the most uh, external way, because I think, and I think in the, in the show before, we sort of talked about some of our process stuff which is also really interesting. But with the Bone Street Roomba series specifically, there is a thread that goes through all three books um, that's kind of a thematic thread, but also just with this one singular song, which doesn't actually exist. And I get this question a lot on Twitter. Um, Sadly, it's not a real song, but it's the song that Sasha plays for Carlos on their first night together. Mm. And she has it on a a cassette tape, which just has the label, uh, the word please written on it. And... First of all, remember cassette tapes. <laughs> Second of all, remember when you could have a song that you had no idea where it came from because it was just on a tape? Mm-hmm. Like, it's so rare now with things like Shazam. Like, it's almost impossible to not be able to trace a song somewhere. Um, and I, I thought there was something very nostalgic and beautiful about this idea that she just has no idea what the song is. She doesn't even know what language it's in. 
Um, but it's this very melodic and beautiful and kind of clanky blues type um, melody uh, with a whole band playing and a trumpet solo and all this just beautiful stuff that they're both really moved by and as they're spending time together. And then it's really the last note um, of the book. And it's the first thing that we hear, essentially, when we open Midnight Taxi Tango. Because Carlos, longing for Sasha, has it constantly running through his head and ends up really annoying everybody around him because all he does is hum this damn melody that everybody's sick to death of, and he doesn't even realize <laughs> he's doing it. And then later, it turns out that the, 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 the way that ch child ghosts function in this world is that they're kind of messengers. So they do like little odd jobs here and there for toys or candy or whatever, things like that. So they're always around. And then they ended up picking up the melody from Carlos because his ass is always singing it. And then they pick it up and it becomes a kind of a war anthem without him even realizing it. Um, so there is this beautiful, I think, thread of just this relationship both between love and war and loneliness and togetherness and all things that are encapsulated within this song, which has no, like Carlos, which has no discernible root. Like we, we don't know where it comes from and we probably never will. And I, I, I love the idea that there is some of him in that song and some of Sasha in that song and their togetherness. And then it becomes this gigantic anthem. There's that. And then there's just that all the characters, have some appreciation of music. So whether it's Kia, whose favorite rapper is King Impervious, who's actually a character from the Shadow Shaper world. Um, in Midnight Taxi Tango, Kia spends the whole book um, walking around Brooklyn, you know, doing different things and fighting ghosts sometimes, but always her power music is uh, King Impervious, and she's always listening to that. And, you know, when she needs to feel strong or when she needs to know who she is, she puts on that, that album, and she feels like herself again. And I guess all those different ways are, are a, a manner of saying that music has so many different functions in our life. And I know it does for me. You know, I know that I use music to inspire me. I use it to calm down. I use it to hype up. Like, it's just, it's everywhere, and it's so important. And it's, it, I, I, I don't always see it given that degree of complexity in books, and I wanted that there. Usually it's like, there'll just be this one singular moment of music, and it's awesome, and that's it. But it's like, music is everywhere like it is so powerful there's also the the competing breakup moments that are paralleled in battle hill bolero where both caitlin and sasha at separate times are in public restaurants or bars and there's live music playing and or or sometimes canned music and then they go through this rupture with a lover and they're kind of like played off each other in ways that, that I really wanted to explore the different ways that they, they deal with music and that the music plays into their emotional moment that's happening right in that moment. So while you've been writing this series uh, with, with all the wonderful music throughout, you've also been working on one for young adults, uh, beginning with, as you had mentioned, yeah. the uh, Shadow Shaper. Um, how yeah. are these two series connected, if, if, if at all? And how about the music as we're talking about it in the young adult one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally connected in the sense of it's all in one world. And it's really, again, back to this idea of a community, right? So, you know, if you live in a community, you there's folks that you know really, really well. You'll have your kind of inner circle of crew, and then they have their circles. And then there's some folks that you just know because they're, you know, your cousin's best friend, and you know them from the bodega that you both go to, but you're not really, like, cool. Um, and I was kind of interested in how that could work on a literary plane, and that's a lot of what's going on. So, I mean, it's the basic idea of just having crossover characters, but to me it's also about really trying to paint this whole very 
very expansive picture of what this world looks like in terms of the interrelationships of people and also sort of the history of the different ways that people have interacted and know each other and lived and died um, in this supernatural Brooklyn. So there's there's characters that show up, and again, like with um, King Impervious, you know, there's characters that we know as people in one series or as a, as a girl in one series and as her stage name and just her art in the other series. Um, so in the simplest way, I could say it's, it's all very connected. Um, musically, Shadow Shaper is really about the idea that art can come to life vis-a-vis spirit and actually save people or hurt people, depending on what who's wielding the spirit and what they do with the art. So mostly it comes in the form of uh, paintings, because the main character, Sierra, is a muralist, uh, but also her brother Juan is in a metal band and a, like a salsa heavy metal band. So um, you've also been making your own changes in the world. In addition to writing, you've been teaching workshops, traveling to conferences. Um, how, mm-hmm. how did you get started with uh, working with people so directly? Um, and how is that mm-hmm. different for you or related to the work that you do on the page? Mm. Yeah, I, before I was a writer... I mean, I was always kind of a writer, but before I was writing (laughs) books, (laughs) I was uh, doing a lot of work around gender violence and racism, um, which are two organizing worlds that in the past, and a little bit less so now, but still, um, have tended to be very separated and really kept themselves at a distance from each other. And trying to bridge that gap was always a part of the work um, that I was invested in, involved in, and sometimes doing that with art. Um, so it, it all feels very connected right now as I'm, you know, as I'm writing these books about art changing the world and about people rising up and taking down systems of oppression and things like that. But at the time when I was in my twenties and and really involved with this work, um, it looked like workshops and organizing rallies and being a part of that world and the conversations that were happening, um, from a very strategic point sometimes and, Sometimes from a teaching point of, you know, how how do we unravel these narratives that are holding us down? How do we write new narratives? So writing became a, a real form of medicine, I think, both self-medicine and medicine for the world in terms of creating new narratives that are in conversation with the old narratives um, to change the world and to make the world a safer place for specifically for the people who haven't had a safe run of it so far because of the different systems we have in place. So I've always taught, whether it's art or analysis of different forms of oppression or writing, and I think they're very connected. I think a big mistake we make as writers and and specifically as writing teachers is to leave out that complex understanding of power when we get into ideas about plot and world building and things like that. We can't act like you can never detach power from the conversation. Like, like, you, you'll find lots of writing teachers and books on writing that will tell you, you know, conflict is the spine of the story and the music of the story and all these other beautiful things, which are true. But truly, if we don't understand power in a complex way, and I mean more complex than like the evil overlord and the noble peasant, then how are we really going to write deep conflicts um, that really speak to the world we're living in today? And I don't think that necessarily means that every book has to deal with race and gender and poverty. And these. No, it's really about can we get at it in a way that speaks to it, whether it's metaphorically, with fantasy elements, with whatever, that says something deeper about power and the way that power functions between us and inside of us than the kind of same old uh, evil versus good shit that we've been doing for a long time. 
And I think we can, but I think we have to be intentional about it, which means we have to own it and have those difficult conversations about privilege, the ones that people really shy away from or make fun of or whatever. And, you know, just own it, look it in the face and give it a name and then have the discussion and get uncomfortable and see where that leads us. And those conversations, when they're done right and when they're had to their full depth, always get us to a better place, a place of healing, and they make the work better. They make us write better books when we can understand things more complexly. So I, I was going to ask, how do, you, how do your workshops work? Are they online or, or uh, in person? Do you, do you have people come to, do you have a meeting place? Uh, different ones. It really depends. I have one on Skillshare right now that's a narrative fundamentals class where I just go over some of the basic uh, kind of table legs that you need to have a story be solid. Uh, I teach at two MFA programs. I teach at Vermont College of Fine Arts, the Writing for Young People program, and the Mile High MFA program, both of which are fantastic programs. Um, I've taught at Vona. kind of go where people ask me to come, generally, and, and, and that's what I do. I've done online classes. There's um, just myself that I put up. Um, I don't have one going right now, but I kind of do different things as they come. You're also very active on social media. As you mentioned, you self-published a new edition of your short story collection. When do you have time to write? (laughs) I mean, um, it's my job. So all the times that I'm not on social media or teaching, um, and, you know, the teaching is a low residency program, so I'm not, it's not like I'm going to class every day or anything. Mm. Um, but I, it's really that I love writing. So I, I, like, I love the process of it. I love writing books. It makes me so happy. And then beyond the happiness part, it balances me. I feel like it's a necessity to me, honestly. When I said medicine, I really meant it. Um, and so I do it uh, out of love mostly, and so I find the time. And sometimes there's certainly days where I don't want to do it, and there's days when I don't do it, and there's days when I don't want to do it and do it anyway, of course, um, because I'm human. And I say it because I think we spend a lot of time giving ourselves grief about not writing enough or whatever. We find lots of reasons to feel guilty and shame about stuff. And I think that more than any anything else is the real impediment to getting the words on the page. You know, like if we truly are able to forgive ourselves for not writing yesterday or for not writing all months or whatever it is that we think we did wrong to offend the writing gods or that doesn't make us an official writer with a capital W or an author or whatever, this mess that we buy into, you know, because we don't have a degree after our name or enough books out or all that. Um, I think the more we can get rid of those voices and those ideas of like what's a real writer and just do the work, you know, and find ways to love the process that's where I think our writing comes to life. Like our craft gets better because we're spending more time doing it and less time worrying about it. And we are more whole human beings because we've taken the time we need to, to do live life, you know, heal, fall in love, fall out of love, whatever, all the different things that we do that we have to do and experience in order to be good writers. It's not all about reading. I mean, reading is fundamental. Don't get me wrong. And I've drawn so much inspiration from so many great writers, but you also have to live your life. And, that's that's always been a guiding light for me is that knowledge is that you have to live so i do write a lot i consider myself like pretty solid on the getting it done tip um but i also make sure that i'm conscious about living and about forgiving myself for living so that when i do write i'm fully present instead of being caught up in some kind of like mind game about should or shouldn't and all this other stuff you know but, but I love it. I love telling stories. I'm excited to, and I love putting them out into the world. Um, 
And I, I think that with social media, like, we have this unprecedented ability to reach people and talk to people about what's going on. You know, like, I always encourage people to live tweet the book. And that just turns into these amazing conversations. And it's so incredible to write something and see people's live response to it, you know, in real time and be able to talk about it. And it's dialogue. It's never been like that before. You know, we've never as writers had that ability to be so deeply in conversation. And there's certainly downsides to it. But overall, it's an amazing time to be a writer. Um, and I personally find that I can I can get the words down. Once, if I can get started and get into a flow, like get some 500 words down or whatever, then I'm, it's fine for me to be on social media, tweet. It only takes but a couple seconds to tweet, you know, and then jump back into the work and then jump back into the Twitter. And that actually allows me to sit for longer because it divides up my attention some. So it's not just that intense, like, it's the page, it's the page, it's the page, you know, for the whole time. <laughs> and then I burn out. But every writer really has to find what their balance is going to be. You know, it's not no one, no one's is the same. And some people, the idea of being plugged into anything while they're trying to write prose is completely abhorrent. And they're just like, how can you? How dare you? And I'm like, that's my process. I'm going to honor it and do it, and you do yours. So Shadow House Fall, the sequel to Shadow Shaper, comes out late this year. What else do you have in the works? So uh, Ghost Girl in the Corner is a novella that, that follows... Uh, Shadow Shaper. Um, there is another novella on the way, which that's mm-hmm. an exclusive piece of information that nobody knows yet. But now you do, so that's exciting. That is uh, exciting. And then, yes, and then um, Shadow House Fall comes out in September. And so, the novellas are kind of a way to explore some of the characters that are peripheral to Sierra. Um, with Ghost Girl in the Corner, T and Izzy, who are two of my favorite characters, and Uncle Neville's in there too, everybody's favorite character. And, um, you know, just get into, kind of make the world more expansive and look at different conflicts that are happening in the neighborhood and stuff. Um, I'm working on a comic book series for Rosarium Publishing, who is a great, which is a great, great press that does amazing work. Um, really excited about that. That's going to come out later this year. And, oh, I've been pushing, not pushing, publishing um, the original manuscript of, of Shadow Shaper, which is called Sh- uh, Sierra Santiago and the Invisible City. It's a totally different book. It literally has the same character, some, most of the same characters, and it's in Brooklyn, and that's about it. <laughs> There's a couple scenes here and there that are the same, but um, I wrote it back in 2009. I mean, this was literally my first novel, um, and it changed so dramatically, the mythology, the conflict, uh, so much that it's really a different book entirely. So I've been posting it on Wattpad, um, chapter by chapter, serialized. And it's been really cool to read it again, first of all. And it's also just cool to kind of discuss with other writers, you know, what what things changed and why and all that. I think it's just a cool kind of, um, I don't want to say teaching exactly, but just a way of, of having an open, self-critical discussion, self-reflective discussion. Plus, I think it's it's a great book. Like it's, it's flawed, but it's still a really cool book. There's a ton of monsters in it. It's all about Brooklyn just being full of all these monsters that nobody can see except for Sierra. And they have all kinds of internal strikes and politics and war and stuff like that, too. So they're all going at it. And Sierra is the ambassador of the humans, um, which her uncle in this version, Lazaro, was before her. And so she has to solve, help solve their problems and stuff like that. It's a really fun book, and it's really fun to read again. Um, so that that's up on Wattpad, which you can find just by searching my name. And there's always something I'm forgetting, but that's, that's what I got for you right now. So do we get to know which characters are featured in the upcoming novella, or do we have to wait and find out? Ooh, I will tell you that one of them is, <laughs> one of them is Juan, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and one of them is going to be um, actually Nina Satorius, who we first met in Salsa Nocturna, mm-hmm. and we second met in um, Ghost Girl in the Corner. So she's a she's like a lived crossover character. <laughs> and, um, yeah, she's a really interesting character to me. She's a white girl from Staten Island, again, one of the few white characters in the series, um, who's really trying to understand uh, privilege and, and do right and, re- you know, recognize the fact that she's an outsider in, the, in Brooklyn and in the crew that she's starting to hang out with and see sometimes and get into what that means. And part of the reason that she's interesting to me as a character is that we don't see that conversation happen a lot. Um, you know, for all our talk about diversity, which is obviously, you know, I think that's important talk. Um, but for even more so, I would say for all the talk we hear white writers talking about writing characters of color, I think it's important to ask uh, writers in general to write characters with privilege, but who think about and deal with their privilege in complex ways. Because that's a conversation we just never see in books. Very rarely do we see um, that that difficulty of grappling with what it means to be powerful in a very lethal society. Um, and it's certainly something I've asked myself and tried to give some of that conversation in terms of being male and being cis and being straight and Carlos's um, arc. And it's something that I've asked uh, my white students to think about as they're writing, you know, their their different characters and thinking about their young adult novels and stuff like that. And it's also something I wanted to challenge myself to figure out as a Latino who's not black, as a man of color who sometimes passes, what does that mean? Um, so all these questions are on my mind, and Mina is a great character that I've always kind of loved and wanted to explore more. Um, so it's a, she, she's thinking about all this stuff, um, not in a heavy-handed way, and also through the mechanism of fantasy and what's that going to mean for her and who she's going to link up with. And as this kind of uh, conflict starts to break out in the ghost world again, uh, all those things come up. So it's going to be very interesting. Well, I can't wait to see it. We've been talking with Daniel Jose Older, and you can find his book, Battle Hill Bolero, in stores right now. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Bookselling Editor Judith Rosen talks about how 2016 went for independent bookstores. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen is here with a 2016 indie bookselling wrap-up report. Hi, Judith. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Very nice to have you on the show. Um, so tell us a little bit about how 2016 went and how it ended for independent bookstores. Well, it ended okay in the end. Um, as uh, one of the booksellers said to me, and I don't think it was original to her, this was a year like none other. I think most people felt that way, no matter what side of the of the uh, dividing line they were on for the election in November. And that election really did bring things to a halt for many bookstores. Um, One bookseller I talked to said that she didn't really get sales back until that final week in December. So people just stopped wanting to buy books? And, you know, we've been looking at the bestseller list and certainly seen a lot of political titles on there. 
but uh, it sounds like they weren't moving so fast. Um, In different regions or communities, people responded differently. Some people came to the bookstores as a as a safe harbor and um and i know one uh bookseller uh christina Honorati, who has uh two stores word bookstore in uh, jersey city new jersey and in brooklyn new york uh, said that she thought looking forward that uh, our role as safe places in our community will be more important than ever i think people were uh, people were lost after the election, and I heard this from stores in heavy Trump community areas. It wasn't just um, Democrats who had their candidate lose. Um, so it was it was distressing for many. Some went to the bookstore and they did buy, and what they were looking for, and what what sold through the holiday season, were a lot of books that help people understand what's going on. I just. I just don't understand our country anymore. Mm. Uh, one book that got a boost was uh, Arlie Hochschild's um, Strangers in Their Own Land. Um, we heard a lot of people doing well with Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, Bernie Sanders' Our Revolution sold quite a bit. Um, Evicted was another book. Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they actually turned to poetry, not so much to understand the election, but to calm themselves. And Mary Oliver's Upstream sold quite well. Hmm. So it sounds uh, like a, a real a real mixed bag. But you said that things picked up a lot in that last week before Christmas. Uh, it's always, it, historically, it's always been the last 10 days that make or break um, the season. But Dana Brigham at Brookline Booksmith and Brookline Mass was telling me that this year it really was a cliffhanger. Mm. She was down the first three weeks of December, and then the last week of December, sales went up 37%. Wow. So, and 2015 was a record-breaking season for her, so um, that 37% was over very high sales last year. So she actually ended the holiday season up despite a slow, a very slow December. Um, other stores were, were flat, but they were pleased to be flat. Um, nothing, nothing wrong with that for a lot of, for a lot of booksellers. In fact, 2015 was a record breaking year. Um, we did talk to one bookseller in, um, in Los Angeles at Skylight Bookstore, um, uh, we spoke to their manager, and uh, Stephen Salardino, and he was saying that at their store, actually, they had their best holiday season yet. And in fact, during that holiday season, they had their highest sales day ever by uh, so it was up by a thousand dollars over their highest sales day previously. Mm-hmm. Um, he was thinking that the current political situation um, has definitely had an effect on nonfiction sales at the store. Uh, so they've, in addition to some of the books I mentioned already, they did particularly well with an indigenous, an indigenous people's history of the United States. That was their 12th top-selling book for the holiday season. Um, but 
they also did well with sidelines, like All Good Things, an organic seed company in California, and they sold a lot of yearly planners called the Slingshot. Uh, so uh, they did fine. Um, we didn't hear too much about coloring books this year. Last year they had been, I'd say, off the charts, uh, but some stores did still sell them pretty well. Brookline Booksmith said people bought them by fistfuls mm. at their store. Uh, maybe not as strong as last year, but definitely has now become a classic gift that some people are are wanting to include as part of their holiday package. Yeah, I, I have some friends who were picking them up as last-minute stocking stuffers, especially. Exactly, exactly. So it's not like they've gone away entirely. They've just settled down from just uh, cra- sheer craziness last year. Um, uh, another thing, I, I, some people did turn to fiction. Zadie Smith was a name we... We heard a lot, and of course, Colson Whitehead, uh, we heard a lot as well. Zadie Smith's book is Swing Time. He wrote, um, Colson Whitehead wrote The Underground Railroad. Those were two very popular books um, and and much acclaimed. But we also heard a, heard a lot from people who sold uh, Atlas Obscura and uh, The Hidden Life of Trees. Mm-hmm. So both of those were two strong sellers, and depending on how much booksellers thought they were going to sell, meaning they stocked up heavily, um, people ran out maybe the week or two before Christmas. Uh, so uh, one thing that was weird this year is uh, there wasn't there wasn't a big children's book. I mean, some years it's been The Wimpy Kid, it's been A Wimpy Christmas, um, we've heard about Harry Potter and thank heavens for Harry Potter. And although Harry Potter still sold strongly, it didn't sell in that way. It was a top seller for some stores, um, Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon. Actually, their children's bestsellers included two of the Harry Potter books, um, Curse of Child, which came out earlier in the year, and Fantastic Beasts, the screenplay for the movie. But um, many other smaller stores, uh, their customers really weren't that interested in reading a screenplay. Mm. Uh, They did by Cursed Child, and they did read uh, a play script, but I guess that was their one script for the year, and they weren't sure they wanted to read a second one. So that was a little bit unusual, and Diary of a Wimpy Kid, although it was strong also, was not on top of some booksellers' lists. It sold well at some stores, not as well at others. Um, We heard a lot about local books, and that that might be one reason people were busy just buying authors that they knew they knew in their area um, in Fargo, North Dakota, um, at uh, San Bras Variety Bookstore, which has been around for quite a while. They just had their 25th anniversary. They did very well with uh, Malia's cookbook. Um, she is a a food blogger, and she has her first cookbook, Molly on the Range, and that was their number 10 book of the year. Um, so, uh, and I think at Skylight, another cookbook uh, connected to, to 
a local L.A. eatery that's pretty trendy and gotten a lot of acclaim. And the person behind Squirrel had her first cookbook, Everything I Want to Eat, uh, by Jessica Coslow. And that one just flew out the door for them. So a, a, a real mixed bag. But it sounds like by the end of the year, everyone was pretty much doing okay? Yes, they really were. Uh, whether it was uh, one thing I, I should have said up front is there was no big national must-have title, and that's part of why you're hearing that it was such a mixed bag. Mm. Uh, although some of these books sold well at a lot of stores, um, Born a Crime also was a strong seller, the mm. uh, Trevor Noah mm-hmm. book. Um, None of them was in the kind of quantity that we've seen in past years for um, uh, some of some of the huge sellers like Girl on a Train. Girl on a Train, still selling. There's still some people who have not read it yet. Um, but uh, uh, that one just wasn't driving sales the way it had maybe sure. last year or the year before. And what about Carrie Fisher's book? Um, Carrie Fisher's books, uh, we didn't really talk about them because um, Carrie Fisher did a lot of, had done a lot of publicity recently, but it didn't, it wasn't until the her death and her mother's death that those books really started picking up in a huge way. So it was just after the holidays that those books started taking off and and we're hearing more about her um, her memoir and and her mother's her mother Debbie Reynolds memoir as well has been selling also uh, but I, I I think it had more to do with the the timing than anything else um, and of course people weren't expecting no one wanted or expected Carrie Fisher to pass away, and so hmm. it wasn't something they were stocking, thinking anything awful would happen. So now they are stocking up because a lot of people do want to read more about her, and they don't want to really say goodbye. Um, we did hear a lot about sidelines, and of course, Christmas cards sell well, and calendars are back in a big way. Um, and the thing that surprised me in terms of calendars, I did mention that one planner, but there's another thing called a bullet journal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, friends are very into that. Bullet journals are huge. I mean, it can do for you what people once did on their phones, and they don't want to do that anymore. I think it's all part of this coming back to books Mm. and uh, more more old-fashioned ways. So, yeah, it was, I think it was um, a really good season, not necessarily the season people expected. Um, In children's, I was surprised that um, Jan Brett, who is a longtime picture book author, seemed to have done particularly well everywhere her tour, and she went to 23 cities this fall, Mm. took her. So she had a book called Gingerbread Christmas, and I could just about track her tour based on which booksellers said it was their top seller of the season and which booksellers did not. 
it was really interesting. I've always been a fan, but um, it just, I think it brought Jan Brett a lot of new new fans from her tour. And we did hear a lot about event book selling. Um, sometimes people's best-selling books were ones where they had had an event with the author, and and those those books just just kept on going. Um, or maybe they had signed books. Um, at Skylight, they had Lauren Graham, uh, star of the Gilmore Girls, and they put a notice up that they had signed copies, and they sold out of 300 books in two days of talking as fast as I can. Wow. Yeah, very well, impressive. Publishers will be so, glad to know those tours actually do any good. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, people and people did want signed books at Word um, at Word Books. Um, they did very well with M Train. Uh, there were signed copies of M Train uh, that were made available, and um, they they just did really well with that. Um, and they had had an event with. Um, 18 in Life on Skid Row with the other that and uh, the musician and and uh, that was one of their top books for the holiday season as a result. Great. Well, thank so. you so much for that report, Judith. It's good to know that all is not doom and gloom even with a very weird season. No, I'd, I'd say it was upbeat and most people are cautiously optimistic as they head into uh, further into 2017. So... I hope that will be the case, that their optimism is justified. Well, thanks so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another tasty author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 